In the early years of Dasra, in addition to working with NGOs, we were always on the lookout for funding. To be honest, 21 years later, we are still on that lookout. But one particular funder comes to mind in 2003, when we received an email from a technology entrepreneur living in the Bay Area who was part of the Yahoo team. His name was Donald Lobo, and he spoke about a nonprofit that he was volunteering with in the U.S. called Inner City Outings, and how he saw similarities with that and an organization that we helped incubate called Magic Bus. We didn't know much about him, except that he was an early Yahooer, not that we even knew what that meant. But we felt it was important to meet him. He was in San Francisco, we were nowhere close, but we ended up driving 2,000 kilometers to meet him. Lobo is the most unassuming philanthropist I've ever worked with. We caught up a few weeks ago. I was in Mumbai, he was in San Francisco. We spoke about his approach to development, the value he places on trust and sharing, his strong conviction in public goods, and how all of this is reflected in his giving. I began by asking him about his appearance in a Rolling Stones magazine article. He's perhaps the only philanthropist we've worked with who's ever been featured in that publication. But in typical Lobo style, he really didn't take the bait. Hey, sorry I'm a bit late. How are you? Good, good, good. I was hard to look for the link. It wasn't on the calendar invite. It's like, oh shit, I've got to go look through my email. <laughs> yes, yes, sorry about that. <laughs> the, the work we make you do, Lobo. <laughs> well, thank you again. This is exciting. It's been a while, I guess, since we've spoken as well. So that, that's, that's always nice to catch up. And thank you for agreeing to this. I think we've known each other for a long time. In 1995, so I'm bringing you back to 95, Lobo. I hope that's okay. August 1st, 1995, in fact. This is from Rolling Stone magazine. This is an article that you were featured on. If you can maybe take us back to that day, and that article is fantastic just because it talks about the internet and what the internet is and, and what it's going to do for the world. So it's really hard to kind of think about it going back. Rather than answering that very specific question, I'll just give you a bit of background on what happened in those days, right? And I think my favorite story is, you know, forget Thanksgiving, forget Christmas. You, you're going to be working on both those days, right? I remember like going, uh, going, walking down to Castro with a couple of other friends and seeing what places were open where we could get a meal during Thanksgiving, of, I think of 94, either 94 or 95. And then we would go back to the office and for just three minutes, we would just look at each other and say like, man, our life really sucks. And at that point in time, no one knew whether we were going to make it or not make it, right? And, and to a large extent, I don't think any of us really cared about it. And that's what I tell people with regard to startups or, or with regard, and actually even in the software industry and with nonprofits that I'm working with, right? You cannot be fixated on the end goal because to a large extent, what happens is beyond your control. But just work on the things that you control and work on the things that you can make a difference with and just go all out for it. 
mean, the other thing which I remember is I would probably say like 80% of my friend circle basically thought that we were stupid and crazy for us to be doing this thing, which no one thought was going to succeed. One more question on Yahoo, at least this particular article, one of the things they speak about, in addition to, of course, defining what the internet is, they talk about how, you know, you worked all day to get these ads up and Jerry Yang, your colleague, you know, gives you a high five, says, thanks, man. And you say, we sold out, even though you did all of this work. Can you explain why you felt Yahoo was selling out by putting ads up onto the platform? So a lot of us at Yahoo were really, really strong proponents of free and open source software. That was really important to us and we really wanted to support the ecosystem. So I'll just go off on another tangent. And most of your listeners probably haven't heard about it, but one of the languages that really made the web what it was in the uh, in the mid-90s was this language called Perl by this amazing guy called Larry Wall. And so when Yahoo was going IPO, right, Philo and I said, we've got to pay back these people, right? We've got to give them this money. We sent email to FreeBSD, uh, that, that was the OS that we were using, which is like Linux, but way better. And we sent mail to Perl. And, and they just didn't believe us, right? They just couldn't figure out why anyone would ever do something like this and why they even deserve any of it. Like, and it took us some convincing to tell them like, no, no, we really want to give you money. There's no strings attached. Uh, and so I think that was our ethos. That was uh, that was our DNA per se, right? We knew that going down the advertising route was making a really big trade-off. We were pragmatic enough to realize that um, it was probably worth it. So even if I go back to 94 or 95 when that happened, I, mean, I probably would still make the same statement, but I probably would still do the same thing. This was about 2002 is, is when we, I guess, started exchanging emails. How old were you, I guess, at that time? 34. If you can give us a little bit of like your own sort of upbringing and what, I guess, motivated you and Mari to start looking at organizations to support and volunteer with uh, at, at a very early age, clearly. I really don't have any answers to that as of yet, right? But... But to me, the big thing which I always ponder about and try to figure out, right? Like, what are the events in someone's life that influence um, a, a person's trajectory? I mean, I think Yahoo made it a lot easier to do what I'm doing today because it basically gave me the flexibility to do whatever I wanted to do. But all this was sown way before Yahoo. So I go back to my childhood, like a normal, I would say, lower middle class. And as we grew up, uh, kind of moving into the middle class and... Uh, and I think when after I left home, it, we we probably are what I'd consider upper middle class in India. Um, and obviously in India at that point in time, like volunteering wasn't a big thing, like giving, and we, to a large extent, we couldn't even afford to give back, right? And I, this is what I tell my kids all the time, right? In life, you'll always remember all the things that you said no to. Uh, and so here's one of these things that I said no to, like one of my sister's friends, my sister's two years older to me, um, checked with me if I wanted to volunteer with uh, the National Association of the Blind in Afghan churches down the road from where we live. It was also when I was in the 10th or the 12th, right? Just when I was kind of uh, turning the wheel from being, being considered relatively stupid to kind of consider someone who might have a chance in this world. And at that point in time, I decided that uh, my studies were more important. Till this day, I think that might have been one of the defining moments. Right. Uh, because even I mean, the fact that I'm talking to you about it like 40 years from that point in time really, I mean, shows you that it's kind of deeply seated in my memory. 
Yeah, so when I came back to the US, when I kind of had a pretty good job, and that's when I started volunteering, right? And that's when I started, um, yeah, so here's an interesting story. So I started volunteering with Asha for Education, um, which is this really, really amazing group. Uh, I still hold it in super high respect, right? We were, they would hold these fundraisers and these galas, and we'd make a few thousand dollars. And I just did the back of the envelope calculation, and I said, you know, the amount of time we spend on this stuff, all of us could just go take a job at McDonald's and we'd make more money than we make at these galas or whatever these fundraisers were for less than half the hour. So maybe we should just stop doing this. So from that time onwards, I said, we've got to just think big, right? We've just got to try to get a lot more money, like make use of the hours that we invest in. So rather than going and asking someone for 50 bucks, try to find someone who you can go ask for $10,000, right? Because it's like a 200x uh, multiple. So this was probably even pre-Yahoo days. So Yahoo was 94. So this was probably in the early 90s, right? So then we basically started working with Oracle and trying to figure out, convince them to give us some money. And we got them to give us a 10K check, which was way more than we ever made before. And then I started volunteering at a homeless shelter in downtown San Jose and kind of getting, and then within a city outings and stuff like that, right? So that kind of started kicking into gear and started seeing the larger problem. But at a very uh, microscopic level, right? It wasn't. Um, it wasn't uh, really at a much larger scale than that. It was like, hey, let's just do something. Let's help people. Let's figure out where where the universe is at. I think that's excellent. Just because I think now clearly a lot has changed, and many people attribute technology, e-commerce, of course, as where you know the unicorns are made, where everyone is there to make money. But when you started out, at least at Yahoo, it was, I guess, more similar maybe to a nonprofit, which was, let's all work hard. We're mission-driven. Let's ensure that we provide the best quality product or service to our customer base. But money necessarily was not something that was going to come. Do you see comparisons to that time? The nonprofit sector in India today reminds me so much of the startup sector uh, in Silicon Valley 20 years ago. But I think the quality and the depth and the vision and the passion of many of the founders that I meet, to me, that's super, super exciting. The fact that there are so many dedicated folks, especially in the younger generation, who are just giving it their all. And many of them don't know whether they'll succeed or fail. And some of them that we've supported have failed. And it's not a big deal, right? If you expect success with everyone, then you shouldn't, mean, you shouldn't be in any game at all. There is always going to be failure. And we've always got to support the people who are just going to give it their best shot. Uh, so to a large extent, a large part, at least in my opinion, right, a large part of your destiny is beyond your control. But you shouldn't really fret too much about it, right? It's like to hell with it. I mean, that, that ship is going to go the way that's going to go. But let me do the best job with what I can control. And the reason I think this is important, comparing the tech sort of entrepreneurial drive and spirit to the NGO sector today, I think many organizations, clearly it's not advertising, but many organizations, I think, go through this, should we scale or not scale? And many times that scaling does entail getting funds from a larger group of funders who then dictate the kind of program you offer or certain areas you go to or you don't go to. There's sort of this dilemma how do you help organizations and leaders grapple with that? So to a large extent, right? And as a funder, I'll also criticize my, I'll put myself in the same boat, right? You know, basically, I, I'll, I'll throw funders under the bus, <laughs> right? Uh, including me. And half the times my thought process is, and maybe I shouldn't be saying it, but I'll say it is like, stop asking such stupid questions, right? Stop asking like stuff that you read in 
uh, in, in magazines and you don't really understand. And I think scale is one of those things where people are kind of semi-fixated on it. And to me, especially in the NGO sector, it's like to help with scale, right? means make sure that you're actually delivering something useful, something high quality, something high impact, right? Make sure that you're delivering something really worth it. And then start thinking of scale, maybe in small baby steps first. There are some NGOs in India who are doing doing an exceptional job of it, right? It means organizations like Lenda, Raj and his team at Lenda Hand India. But like with many of these smaller NGOs and even some that I've, I'm on the board of, right? I'm implicating myself in this whole diatribe. Like they'll ta- start talking about scale when they haven't really shown evidence, which I think is so, so early in the game. Like go prove your product, go figure out how you can kind of work with other NGOs to kind of deliver bigger impact. Get your larger story right first. And especially with a country like India, right? With like so many states, so many languages, so many governments. And and I wish it was a bit more realistic. I mean, the scale and impact, right? Two words, which I kind of semi-detest, to put it nicely. But I think an important question that everyone should have a clear idea on internally, right? They might not have the numbers on it. Can we make this grow? And is that our ambition? Hey, is this really useful? How is it making a difference to their lives in the long term? I think those things are really important, right? Trying to put in the formal word of scale or the formal word of impact. Many foundations and funders have probably placed a bit too much of an emphasis on that, which I think is probably not the right thing to do, especially for small to medium-sized organizations. And you've clearly support a wide range of organizations, some that remain small with just 30 individuals that they support, but go deeper into those commitments and some that have scaled. Do you think it's an either or, or is it more of an and? Yes, uh, it's more of, I wouldn't even say it's an or or an and. It's more like, do you know what you're getting into when you get into uh, a relationship with an NGO, right? If you're thinking they should scale, but the NGO knows that, they are basically just going to be 30 people or maybe 60 people uh, 10 years from now. As long as your visions don't clash significantly, I think it's fine. To me, at that, at the stage at which we fund these days, right, scaling is not even, it does not even come into the ballpark. So now we'll re- rewind back 15 years ago where we uh, kind of relied a whole lot more on Dasra. And that's the other thing which I want to really emphasize, right? Especially from an individual funder perspective, how much time you're willing to put into it. And if you're going to put into it like four hours in a year, well, let's be really generous. If you're going to put in 10 hours in a year, and, I'm, and we weren't even putting in that much, right? You've got to realize that it's probably best for you to just shut up and give someone who's spending way more time, let them make the decisions. And I think that's why our relationship worked quite well. We knew that y'all were spending 100 hours a week on it, and we'd be lucky if we had spent 10 hours a year on it. To me and Mari, it was a growing journey. It was a growing path over the past 15 years, right? We got here primarily because we are willing to trust other people. At this point in our conversation, Lobo began to talk about the Shuttleham Center as a contrast to the conventional idea of scale. Shuttleham is a home for around 30 girls based in Dharavi, Mumbai. Lobo and I have both worked with Shuttleham closely for over two decades, and I'll be speaking to Karen and Sharda from the Shuttleham Center in another episode. Lobo also speaks about Magic Bus and its founder, Matthew Spacey. 
Magic Bus is an NGO that has reached over a million adolescents and young adults across India. I think the two examples that, you know, early on when we started working with you, the Sharanam Center and then Magic Bus, one is looked at as an organization that's been very, very successful in scaling, and the other one has been looked at as uh, an organization that's been very successful at staying with the same group long term. But I think if you can explain, uh, you know, both of these groups, and I guess, again, why you decided to support both of them, I guess around the same time. So Sharanams is a home for girls. Uh, they can cater to up to approximately 30 girls. They've been in business for around 15 years, so approximately 60 girls have gone through and I think they're doing an amazing job. They can do better. They can do worse. Like, will it ever scale? No. Do we want it to scale? Is it a goal for us that it should scale? No, definitely not. Because what they are doing is incredibly powerful, is incredibly useful. The people that we have out there, it's just amazing that these three people, like Sharda, Nirmal, and Karen, have been around for like 10 plus years. Without that dedicated commitment, Sharanam wouldn't be where it is today. And especially with regard to children and stuff like that, right? I always think about my own family. Like I have a tough enough time raising two kids. And so is it really realistic for us to expect organizations to really support like 10,000, 100,000, 1 million kids and really do a great job of it? It means if some organizations can do it, all power to them, right? And at that point in time, Magic Bus was also just uh, just basically an idea in Matthew's head. It was like Matthew really knew what he wanted to do. Luckily for Matthew, it was also something that we were interested in at that point in time, right? And I still think it's we are interested in it today, right? Like exposing kids to stuff that they've never done before, whether it's the outdoors, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's a movie theater, or even getting on a train, right? It varies in India versus the US, but it's exactly the same. Like when we were doing stuff in the Bay Area with kids, there were kids in East Palo Alto who hadn't seen the Bay and the Ocean, which is like 20 minutes away or like an hour away. Uh, and, and there are lots and lots of kids in India like that, right, who haven't seen things in their own, own neighborhood. At that point in time, was our expectation that Matthew was going to scale a million X? Right? It means no. It means was that uh, our impetus or the, the thing? It means to me at that point in time and even today, right? So I think in that sense, I don't think our philosophy has changed a whole lot. I don't think we were investing in Magic Bus. I think we were investing more in Matthew. And with regard to Sharanam, um, I think we were investing more in, um, at that point in time, it was more in you with regard to what you were trying to do with Sharanam, uh, because only later on we kind of met uh, Sharda and Nirma. And that's why I think investing in people and investing in their vision and knowing that, hey, in a good year, half of them are going to succeed and the other half is go are going to fail. Um, and in the long term, maybe you only have a 10 to 20% success rate. But if you look at it from a VC uh, industry perspective, et cetera, that's an amazingly mind-blowing success rate. And even those failures, right, those people have, have learned a lot from their failures and they've probably gone back and made a lot more, have gone back to bigger successes over time. Sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, we saw many, many sort of U.S.-based tech entrepreneurs setting up their own foundations. And going back to sort of your earlier point about impact and scale, there's mixed reviews, I guess, you know, 15, 20 years later on the benefits or pros of focusing on impact in scale, as well as the cons. You really don't like those two words, but some of this, I guess, is fueled by, you know, individuals from the tech space in Silicon Valley. 
who've amassed great deals of wealth. What do you think are sort of sort of the pros as well as the cons? Because I think one of the points of, of this particular conversation, you know, in, in no cost extension is about talking about the cons as well. Because I think many times we sort of brush over uh, as a sector as well as as a society by, but oh, but we're doing good anyways. And, and by all means, criticizing doesn't mean we're not doing good, but there may be ways of us doing it better. Yeah, uh, so we'll come back to the last statement, right? The minute someone says, I'm doing good anyways, it's like, you should show him the door and you should walk out, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, because like, uh, I think we as, a, uh, we as a world, we as a civilization have gone beyond the, we are doing good anyways. Right? You've got to be a lot more concrete on what good are you doing and why? And how is it actually making an impact? And it doesn't make any difference whether it's with one person or 10 people or with 100 people or, or with a million people, right? So that's why the impact, I think impact is important. But the problem that I have with the foundation world or many of the funders is like measurable impact, I think, is a really lot harder. Like measure, measurable scientific impact is like a ball game all by itself. Some larger organizations should start thinking about it. But every organization, whether you're serving one individual or whether you're serving a million folks, should be think, thinking about impact. And sometimes making a difference is quite a hard uh, statement to quantify. So it could be your, your inner belief that, hey, in the long term, this will make a difference. And I think that's good enough also. So I'm not saying you've got to quantify everything, but you've got to have this, this conviction that in the short, medium, or long term, this is going to make a significant difference, right? And if all your stuff is like, oh, in the long term, 20 years from now, this is going to be amazingly awesome. It's really hard to invest in someone like that. My next question would be like, great, like, while we can't wait for 20 years, like, what are the small steps between now and 20 years that you can kind of show that you're making, uh, making a difference or that you're actually improving, like improving lives or whatever, right? Your intervention is doing something. So I think that is super, super important. And if someone cannot make give you a good story on that, that I would say is a really a big warning flag. So whenever I talk to new funders, uh, means, or whenever you put me in touch with people, or whenever, you, whenever I talk to other folks who are thinking of it, right? My first thing to them is always, the more time you can go spend on the ground, right? Assuming you really want to play an active role. So now obviously we come back to our earlier conversation of active and passive, right? And I've bitched about you about this to you also, right? And this even comes to the consulting companies like the Dasras and the Satwas, right? Going and spending time in the field is super, super important, primarily to get that, uh, that first-hand knowledge. Not that you're going to understand the program a lot better, but you're going to build a lot more empathy. You're going to kind of sympathize. You're going to kind of start looking at it more from the viewpoint of the NGO rather than the viewpoint of a third-party person. Just another story, right? The other day I was uh, giving a recommendation for shelter to, or to one of the funding organizations. And it's like, while I do appreciate the young, uh, the young generation, and I think they're amazingly awesome, especially many of them who are starting it, it's like, we are allowing these people who have no idea what life on the field is, who have no idea what the impact is to even think about making decisions. This is so wrong on so many levels. But while we can laugh about it, right, at some level, it's also incredibly sad that, that such things happen, right? So I really, really means want people to actually go spend time and to really, especially when you're getting more, uh, more into it, like because then you really see it with a very different lens. 
you understand, you empathize with it a lot more, you see what the problems on the ground are, and then you really look at what does impact and scale mean. And so I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer. It depends on what the organization you are, uh, you are funding is, what their goals are. If you know what your goals are, then you should find organizations that are in line with your goals. NGOs will always craft their grant statements to try to tell the funder what they want to hear. Means that's that's reality of what funding is all about, right? So I think trying to find a match between what you want to do and what organization, like where you want the organization to go, assuming that you know enough about the problem, enough about the impact, enough about the region. And, and my big question is how many how many foundations, how many funders know enough about any of those things? Do you feel that? things have been improved. And so there clearly is a complaint from organizations in India and across uh, sort of emerging markets or the developed, developing world, I guess, around how solutions that are being thought up either in sort of, you know, national capitals of a country or, or the US, you know, San Francisco, London, New York, uh, those solutions are the ones that are being sort of propagated exactly to perhaps what you were just alluding to, which is uh, those solutions are being propagated across multiple geographies with very little sort of knowledge of, of what's happening on the ground. And so how, I, I guess, do you think that this sort of decentralization of decision-making has changed since you've been part of this sector for the last you know, 20, 25 years? And, and if not, what are some of the things that, that these foundations can do to improve their sort of knowledge of that on the ground support? Yeah, I, I, I think that has changed a lot, right? I mean, I think that has changed, at least from my perspective, right? And again, I means I would just put the disclaimer out there, right? I really have no idea of the funding and slash foundation landscape in India to a large extent, but at least from my external viewpoint, right? The fact that many of these large foundations have fairly significant in-house teams, taking a really great example like Omidya Network, where the India operations has, to a large extent, at least from what I understand, basically pretty much total control about how they spend the money and who they invest in and everything, right? More and more foundations are going down that road, right? Uh, and in a very, very uh, different manner, like if you look at the UN Digital Goods Public Alliance, et cetera, right? Like even they've realized, right, if you want software to succeed, if you don't have a local presence, it's not going to succeed. If you're pushing it from the US uh, into India, the chances of it succeeding are pretty much close to zero. So you need to have local presence, you need to have local developers, you need to have local commitment. So and if, it's, if, it, if that's happening at the tech stack level, you know that it's happening at, at the foundation level, which I think is like three to five years uh, in terms of that scope ahead of them. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't really go too much into it primarily because I don't think I have enough knowledge slash expertise to talk about it. There also, I guess, is uh, or has been, you know, a, a view that tech entrepreneurs want to support tech because that's something they're good at. That's something they know. They're very sort of bullish on those aspects. And as a foundation, I guess you all look at both uh, sort of supporting organizations for non-tech solutions, uh, as well as you have over the last, I guess, three to four years have doubled down on technology overall for the sector. If you could maybe talk a little bit about that 
and and what led you to sort of look at this and maybe even bringing up some of you know the past experiences you had with CVCRM and the limitations as well as that tech have has excuse me as well as sort of the benefits of tech for for the nonprofit sector especially in India the tech capacity slash tech support of NGOs, especially in India, right, is like 10 to 15 to 20 years ago or what it is in the business. Like um, it's minus 10 or minus 15, right? And when we started Tech for Dev and that whole initiative, I assumed it was more of a problem of the medium and small size NGOs. But over the last year, I've realized that the bigger NGOs aren't any different, right? They probably have the problem as bad. Probably the only difference is they have enough funding potentially to blow away. And in many cases, that does happen. So I walk away from those. And that's where one thing where I think we are semi-bullish in India about, right? I do think that tech can enable lots of NGOs to do a lot of good work. And I use the word enable out there, right? I don't think tech is a solution. And I think anyone offering tech as a solution, you should probably walk either walk away from them. I mean, unless, unless it comes with a lot of money and then you should figure out how to take the money and try to do as little as possible on the tech side. But it comes down to a bigger problem, which at least we've noticed with the organizations and the applications that we get, right? I would say like 60 to 80% of the applications and the requests that we get is like people really have no idea what they want to do with tech, right? They think it's going to solve their problems, but no, tech is not going to solve your problems, right? You are going to solve your problems. Tech can kind of help you implement it. And that means, and, and we don't have the uh, the time, the capacity and the bandwidth, or, or to a large extent, we really don't have the knowledge, which I consider kind of like more like business consulting, business management to really help these NGOs to kind of figure out, hey, you've got to get your act together. You've got to get your processes together. And I'll give you this one example of this amazing organization in Northern India. We rarely draw judgment on the work that an organization does. And we are thinking of helping them with tech, uh, especially with it in a tech for dev perspective, where we think it's fairly small grants. We just want you to have a good process because if you don't have a good process, you cannot really translate any of that into technology. This organization was just collecting data on WhatsApp in an incredibly unstructured manner. You can collect data on WhatsApp in a super structured manner. You can use whatever tools you have in, in an awesome way or in, in a manner uh, just to collect stuff without really doing anything with it. And so this organization was doing this work. And we told them like, hey, you know, we can set you up with Google Forms and this really simple system that will just kind of give you a better idea of what data you're collecting, what's important and how you can use it this organization was hell-bent on having an app. And they thought that an app was going to solve their problems, right? Even though none of their, the people on their field had ever basically had any idea of how to submit any data, right? So they thought the app was going to fix all their data problems. An app is not going to fix your data problems, right? You've got to have a process and fix your data problems there. And an app is going to enable making collecting data a lot easier. And we tried to convince this NGO, right? But we just couldn't convince them. And we just walked away. We had to walk away from the project. But people, for example, that are listening will still, like you rightfully said, consider tech as an admin expense. One of the reasons they do so is because they're not able to link the utilization of technology, in this case, to impact on the ground. So that's what I would tell a tech funder, right? Like, just don't rely that technology is going to solve the problem because many of these organizations 
aren't really ready to imbibe technology. And if you're going to support them, it's going to be over the long term. But I'll also flip the flip the equation on the other side. Uh, and I always tell NGOs, right, if you don't ask your funders for tech money, if you always put tech as an overhead, everyone will treat it as an overhead. If you always put it as an admin expense, it is an admin expense. If you don't integrate it with your proposal, it will never be part of uh, the budget that they give you. So I would say that the blame that the blame is on both sides um, with regard to funding and everything. Uh, but I do think it's important for, and especially for the NGOs, which are slightly like the five years plus um, organizations, to kind of start thinking and investing a lot more in tech. Because we see some amazing, especially in community health, and if we, and means we can talk of the uh, of the IHMP example and the work that Dr. Ashok uh, and his group are doing, right? It's it's mind blowing work, right? It's the work and the data that they collect is good enough that they get published in some of the most presti- prestigious journals around India and the world. But till two or three years ago, they were collecting it in registers and paper and pencil. It took me personally like two plus years for Dr. Ashok to convince Dr. Ashok to give digital surveys a try. What work does IHMP do? Uh, so IHMP basically does community health uh, with uh, specifically with adolescent girls and women in rural Maharashtra. So everything from anemia to uh, menstruation to adolescent uh, mental health. And they've been doing this work for like 30, 40 plus years, right? Uh, but all of them run an amazing job using registers. All right. And the fact of the matter was, even though IHMP was doing a really good job, by the time the register was filled till it came to the head office and collated and data analyzed, it was a three month cycle. Uh, today, it's basically a three hour cycle. But the tech wasn't the hard part of it, right? The hard part of it was convincing them. Uh, and in this case, they had really good processes, all right? So, like, one, implementing the tech was actually the easy part of the whole equation. I think from, you know, at least the first time we met with you, you were very keen on also saying the organization should use the funds as they see fit, because you realize that, I mean, even electricity to your earlier sort of analogy is required. I mean, we all need electricity. It's not an adjunct. We do need to use emails. We do need to have an office. But many funders, again, do not see that as valuable or something they want to sort of support. What convinced you and Mari, I guess, early on that this is an area that also required support and sort of differentiating between this line item or that line item may not have been the best use of either your time or or the organization's time? I mean, I I think the minute you work with a nonprofit or the minute you actually run a women's volunteer with a a nonprofit in a significant manner, you immediately run into the world's uh, restricted versus unrestricted funding problem, right? Again, like if you look at it from a business perspective, right? When you invest in a company, like whether you're investing in shares or whether you're investing in a VC fund and everything, when you give a company money or when you're investing in a company, like you don't specify how the company is going to spend that money. That that topic does not even come to, like maybe the board might kind of talk about it, but from a funder and investor perspective, None of that appears um, in any of the contracts you sign or in any of the various financial documents you sign. So it's really strange that with nonprofits that we are willing to make such statements like, oh, you can use it only for A, B, and C. And then you build this whole ecosystem of how do we circumvent getting around A, B, and C because we have this funding. Like 
it's the stupid game that everyone plays, right? But I think that game, for lack of a better word, I always thought that was a stupid thing to do. There are a couple of cases where it, it does make sense, like where you want to give to one specific program, like if an organization has got lots of programs and everything, and we would do this also, right? Like when we are funding inner city outings, the Sierra Club is this massive, massive nonprofit, right? It's got a gazillion programs. And we just wanted to make sure that this the money that we give the Sierra Club goes to inner city outings because that was where we were giving the money to. Yes, I think there are, there are some cases where restricted versus unrestricted funding makes sense, but far uh, and away, it does not make sense. And, and when you say a certain way, again, it's not that they're going off their mission, they're not embezzling, because I think there's a trust deficit that for whatever reason occurs, and there's a greater trust being put with millions of dollars being invested in for-profit companies versus hundreds of thousands that are being donated to charity. And so how did you get over that trust deficit? And, and I guess what are the forms of accountability that you still see from the organization that ensures, you know, there is some level of, I guess, financial compliance and transparency? So I think a bigger question to answer is why is there a trust deficit between an individual and an organization, right? Or the sector, right? And most of them, I would say like all of them have just potentially read articles or like they really cannot substantiate or they really, really cannot justify that. So I think entering into any relationship with a deficit without having any basis for that, you've got to probably try to stop that as soon as possible. Because then it's really hard to convey because then you're trying to try to prove something which is um, self-evident in my perspective, right? I mean, in the past 15, 20 years, we've probably funded like maybe say 50 to 100 organizations, right? I mean, my biggest problem with the money that we've given to organizations has always been like, spend it, right? I mean, spend it on yourselves, like make sure you take care of yourselves kind of deal, right? Don't worry about the small details. Do, I mean, we trust you to do the right thing. So I think it's important to begin the relationship with uh, um, with a sense of trust. And if you're not very uh, if you're not comfortable with that, like take some time to build that relationship. But ultimately, you're investing in people. You're investing in the you're not really investing in an organization per se, but you're investing in that person. And you've got to have a really good trusted relationship. And I've, again, I'll ask these questions, right, uh, quite a few times. And to me, that that's not even in my top 10 questions. Or not means, actually, it's not even in my top 100 questions, right? My worry is more about, are they going to be like a bit too smart with every single penny or every single pese, rather than be a bit more liberal and not like just do the right thing and trust themselves to do the right thing and not necessarily feel that they have to account for every single rupee to uh, to me or to anyone else, right? So that itself could be, is perhaps even the power imbalance, right? Of, of again, certain givers sort of assuming again that there's distrust and, and operating on that even after they fund perhaps, which is again, horrible. And why should have they funded in the first place if they didn't have that trust? Uh, yeah, number one, explain to yourself and clarify internally within yourself as to why you have that trust issue. That's a problem more for you than for the NGO. You know, in most cases, make peace with it yourself and then get all your questions answered. Get all the paperwork you need done. Like Make sure that you're satisfied. 
and get the NGO to deliver on what you want them to do in case you want some evidence, right, uh, to do it. But make sure it's reasonable. And I guess pay what it takes as well. So if it's tech, if it's electricity, if it's computers, that is as critical as, of course, interaction with uh, your communities and your users. Uh, yeah, and hopefully that uh, means hopefully none of those are an issue because you've given them unrestricted funding <laughs> and you're not trying to say, <laughs> yeah, so we've, we've, we've hopefully sorted that out early on, right? Exactly. So Tanisha's on uh, line now, and she has a question for you. Thanks, Neval. Uh, my name is Tanisha. I work with the transformations team at Tasra, which is more of the capacity building support for our nonprofits. Lobo, I, I know that you've done a lot of pioneering work with open data and creating open data access. I think two quick questions for you on that is one, what are really the current barriers preventing our civil society organizations from joining and contributing to the open data movement? And secondly, what do you think philanthropists could do to foster an enabling environment that builds towards that idealistic future? I know we're really far from that right now. So that's a good question, right? And I think we are far from both those things, right? So I would say there are one person organizations who can potentially contribute to the open data movement and who have data in a good enough shape to actually contribute back. But I think for most of the organizations, it's like, hey, can you get your data in a good enough means? Do you have enough processes? Do you have enough stuff internally to get your data in a shareable format, right? So which basically knocks off like 90% of the organizations. For the other 10% of the organizations that, that are still left, right? Then it comes down to the question of what do they get for sharing the data? Like what's in it for them? And that's a bigger question of ethics. Uh, and, uh, and that's both for data and for software, right? And that's where also foundations and funders come in. And here's my view and here's what we've basically made as a blanket rule because I've, I've been, I'm a bit tired of even uh, discussing it. So our blanket rule is any work if we are going to fund an organization, anything and everything they do has to be open source. Anything and ev any data that they have, as long as it does not have any privacy implications, has to be open data. Period. No questions asked. If you have a problem with that, maybe we are the right partner for you. So, the, so the, and that I totally agree is one end of the extreme. But I think uh, to some at some point in time, we had to make that stand because it was just trying to convince people and nothing getting done. Once upon a time, when I say once upon a time, 18 months ago or maybe 24 months ago, I thought it was an NGO problem. But I think that was probably uh, stupid thinking, wishful thinking or bad thinking. It's basically a foundation slash funder problem. I think, uh, and to a large extent, uh, I don't think it happens as much these days. It probably still happens. It probably happens 50% of the time. Many foundations still require the copyright slash IP of anything that's developed to either go to the foundation or to the NGO, which just does not make sense in today. And, and a lot of what I say in open source also applies to open data, right? Just does not make sense. You basically, if you're doing something for the public good, why don't you give the public ownership of it? It does not, and I think funders and foundations can play a big role in it. That's step one, right? But step one is really not going to get you anywhere. You can you can put your stuff out there, but if other people aren't willing to use it, aren't willing to do research and figure out what's there, that's also a big part of the ecosystem and a big part of the problem, right? Um, and that's true in open source and open data. And SPA means 
if I had to really slam Indian NGOs on one thing, it would be on you've got to spend a certain amount of time doing research on what everyone else around you is doing before you embark on something. So if you're going to spend six months on something, on a project or an intervention, let's face it, right? Like 90% of anything that, or maybe even more, what anyone thinks about has already been done by someone somewhere. And the chance of you finding something like that is probably not high, but it's fairly, it's fairly decent, right? Depending on the area and everything. But for you not to spend a week trying to do research to figure out what the state of the ecosystem is today is a crime. It's, it's basically like cardinal sin if you're, if you're a Roman Catholic, right? That, that's mind-boggling. One of my common questions to most NGOs is like, talk to me about your competitors and how you're different or what's common in them. What do they do? I would say like 80% of the organizations don't give me a good answer. And that to me is not a really good state of affairs. If you don't know what other people are doing, then you really can't reuse anything of what anyone else is doing. And again, like building the sharing ecosystem and et cetera is again a long-term journey, right? Step one is like putting what you have out there. Step two is kind of having a better idea of what other people are doing so you can potentially reuse it. And I think funders obviously are an important part of the ecosystem that can make this happen. And I think the Gates Foundation is doing this with the community of practice for the sanitation stuff. And I don't know if you have, I mean, you all might have some stories of hopefully some of them piggybacking on each other. But as a sector, especially in India, right? Uh, and I'm seeing a few things happen, but not as much. If we don't piggyback on each other, we are going to lose the game. I, I think, Lobar, I appreciated the slam on the NGO sector. I, I can... I guess then what do you see sort of, at, you know, for the next five, 10 years uh, going forward? So I would strongly, strongly encourage everyone to also start considering to giving, giving to small and medium sized, it means the smaller organizations, right? And funding the, uh, the so-called startup ecosystems. For a long time, uh, over the past couple of years, my biggest peeve was you've got organizations like Echoing Green, Mulago, uh, DRK, right? Uh, and the Ashokas, right? Based in the US and maybe even some in Europe, um, who find and fund amazing entrepreneurs in India. To me, it's a big shame, right? As Indian funders, as Indian um, foundations, we have to make a better job of actually nurturing that ecosystem much better. Like the fact that DRK and Mulago, I means I, I love those people, right? I means I'm good friends with many of them. Um, and I'm happy that they're finding and funding these uh, funding organizations in India. But I want Indian, uh, Indian foundations and Indian funders um, to actually find and fund these organizations. And, and what Atul and the work that Nudge is doing is amazing in that regard. And we need more people. It means more organizations and more foundations and more initiatives like that. And the other thing is, like fund outside your circle. 20 years ago in the US, I would had this statement, like the whole foundation NGO cycle uh, circle is incredibly incestuous. And we've got to kind of step outside that a bit. And I am, and I'm kind of making an assumption that it's true. It might be true in India also. It is wrong for all of us, including us, to only fund the successful ones. We've got to also look beyond them, right? And look to people who might have tried it and failed, and maybe they just needed that last additional push, maybe some intangible, right? And the other thing which I do think uh, we need in India, right, which again, speaking, looking at it from a US perspective, is getting NGOs in the same room together to talk to each other and for the founder to get the hell out of there. Uh, the, the minute funders are there in a room, the dynamic changes. 
getting these collaborations, uh, I think is super, super important. And we actually funded Sneha to do that before COVID, right? And ideally, if they could be self-organized, right? I mean, and I think the skilling sector, like I think Raj and Chris um, and Priya uh, did this like 18 months ago. I think they had an informal get-together in Bangalore for two days. Like I think when either Chris or Raj told me that, right, it was music to my ears, right? It was like, that's what you want people to do. I mean, while you've been mostly focused, I guess, on India for this time period, do you have any comparisons with the Indian or U.S. nonprofit sector from your from your exposure or vantage point? And I think it's night and day. I mean, I think, like, say 10 years ago, India from an NGO perspective was maybe like minus 20 years behind the U.S. Uh, today, it's probably like minus five years, and it's, but it's going to catch up and exceed the U.S. Uh, from a vibrancy, from an energy perspective. And again, coming by, uh, coming, uh, uh, drawing that comparison, just like the DRKs and the Mulagos, right? We need ACLUs in India. We need the, when I say, I don't even mean a branch of the ACLU, right? We need the Electronic Frontier Foundation, like Internet Freedom Foundation or the Software Freedom Law Center. We need all these, um, all these organizations to build uh, a resilient ecosystem. So coming back to your previous question, right? That's what I think funders and foundations should also start paying attention to, right? Like funding beyond the big three, right? Um, I mean, I'm not saying don't fund the big three, but like save some percentage of your money to fund um, fund all these other ecosystems, which are also super important and which are probably even more important. No, no, of course. Um, and anything else uh, you want to leave our listeners with, Lobo? At least from my perspective, like it's the greatest industry to be involved with, especially in this day and age, especially in India, right? But the vibrancy and the impact that we can have at scale, right? And I think the way, uh, the trajectory of where India is going and where the nonprofit sector and the social sector in India is going, if we get a lot more people in it, if we get even more people in it, it can, it, it, it is mind blowing. The problems are immense, but we, a lot of the solutions are known. It's a lot of, it's a matter of implementation, getting the work done and coming up with even more creative ways and even better ways of the way we, we've done things so far. Great, thank you so much, Lobo. We really appreciate your time uh, and and your, your insights and, and more importantly, I think the exposure and impact you've created uh, over the last few decades. Thank you, Lobo. No worries, cool, great. Okay. Bye. Bye. Give my regards to the family. Yeah, cool. I've got to jump on another call now. <laughs> my... Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. I'm Devil Sungvi. If you'd like to know more about Lobo and the Chintu Gudia Foundation, go to chintugudia.org. That's chintugudia.org. Or you could visit our website, dasra.org forward slash NCE. We've got show notes, links, and much more about all of our guests. Don't forget to subscribe to No Cost Extension wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend about the show. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>